Welcome back to The Curious Clinicians, a medical podcast that asks why. I'm Tony Brew, and as always, I'm joined by my co-hosts, Avi Cooper and Hannah Abrams. How are you guys doing this evening? I'm ready for this one. This is is an exciting episode. (laughs) All right. Well, I guess we should get right to it then. So today, what we're going to do is examine the mechanism by which furosemide, a loop diuretic, can improve dyspnea and pulmonary edema in the setting of CHF. And what's interesting is it can do it within minutes, uh, despite the fact that the diuretic effect takes a little bit longer. And so, and this is you know surprising that it's so immediate. And really, the reality is it has nothing to do with the diuretic effect. Yeah, I mean, amazingly for me, it seems that the very this very potent diuretic, and like that's how when we use it, that's what we intend for it. We want to make the patient urinate <laughs> more and make more urine. It's working by a non-diuretic mechanism in its immediate effects when you see an immediate benefit, like within minutes of administration, it has nothing to do with making urine, which for me was really, yeah, very surprising. So Avi, how did you first hear about this concept that um, furosemide or loop diuretics can improve dyspnea within minutes? So I think like some of many of the random facts swirling in my brain, I think this one lodged in my memory somewhere when I was a resident. And like there was a teaching conference given by a co-resident who I think ended up going into nephrology, if I remember correctly, <laughs> and during internal medicine residency and I and talking about this mechanism. And I remember thinking, hey, that's really cool, but I didn't look into it more. And more recently decided to revisit it and really do a deep dive and try to figure out exactly what is going on when furosemide works right away and makes people feel better? And you know why can it provide this immediate relief for flash pulmonary edema? And so ha- have either of you witnessed this effect clinically yourselves? So, so I, I did as a junior resident. I, I didn't know necessarily that's what was happening. I just know that I had a patient who was called for. They had acute dyspnea. We felt they had acute flash pulmonary edema. And I can distinctly remember giving them or asking the nurse to give them a dose of IV furosemide. And then, like, sort of standing there, like, totally flummoxed, because all I could do was look at the Foley bag and wait for urine to come out. And the reality was that even before the urine came out, the patient was doing better. And I felt like a great doctor, but I had no idea, like, why. And I just, I, I took full credit for it, of course. But Of course. Uh, I didn't realize that it was probably what you're going to tell us about tonight that was happening. Yeah. And so similarly, I'll say I learned this from you, Avi, early in intern year. And so I often like to tell people that they should start feeling the effect soon. I'm like, we're going to give you this medication. It'll make you start feeling better soon. So I, I, I think there's probably some placebo effect in there too, just really for sort of like uh, maximal synergistic effect, a little bit of a thiazide there. So who are you saying that to? The patient, the patient. or the, the care team who's like so linked? To, okay. <laughs> Everyone else who's like nervous, like, what are the we going to do? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Okay. So do we know when this was first discovered? So it, it actually was when furosemide was first introduced as a loop diuretic. And this was way back in 1964. And you know, it's, it's use in congestive heart failure and pulmonary edema. It was originally described in a case series, like right when the drug was first put on the market. And the authors, they observed that treatment of pulmonary edema with furosemide led to a quick improvement in dyspnea. And they specifically noted, you know, it was even before diuresis, which is kind of, I think, clinically what that's been our, that's been my own experience. It sounds like yours as well, that sometimes patients just get better right away. And they noted that in the first description of the use of the drug. Do we have any like objective physiologic data about it? 
other than patients just kind of feeling better because the doctor <laughs> has told them that the LASIKs will start That's... working soon. <laughs> yeah, Dr. Abrams said I was going to feel better, and boy, do I. <laughs> the power of communication. That's not enough? <laughs> So you know, they took um, it took a few years, but 1974. So I was at 10 years later or so. There was another study that that tried to examine this, and so they measured left ventricular filling pressures in real time after furosemide was given, and not surprisingly, the LV filling pressures decreased after the furosemide was given, with a peak at about 15 minutes or so. But the pressure started to go down within five minutes. And, you know, many minutes before the patients really started to make urine and diuresis, And so it seems like this kind of whole furosemide, the clinical effect that was witnessed in the 70s was shown to be correlative with a decrease in filling pressures, suggesting that it is working right away. So but I love it. Go ahead, Hannah. I just love. I love what a theme it's become for the podcast that decreasing LV filling <laughs> pressures reduces sen- the sensation of dyspnea. If that has not been conveyed, yeah, we should point. just rename the podcast. <laughs> this is like the fourth time. <laughs> so, so we we talked about this a few times, and and I, I, actually, when I think back to like my internal explanation, I was like, oh, I'm not seeing the urine in the Foley bag because it's like still in, in like I don't know the nephron or in the the ureter or something. I had some crazy explanation, but you're, I think it's, it should be clear to everyone. It's not the diuretic effect. So you got to help us out. Like what else is going on here? Yeah. I mean, it wasn't, it's like in transit, <laughs> like just, well, well that just was my silly explanation internally. Cause I didn't have anything else. I think that's a fair explanation, you know, like, but it turns out that the earliest physiologic change that, um, that this group detected was actually a dramatic increase in venous capacitance within five minutes, within the same time frame as that left ventricular filling pressure went down. So to have increased venous capacitance, this implied that furosemide was causing venodilation and doing so pretty rapidly. You know, and again, because it correlated with this drop in filling pressures that they found, it suggested that the venodilation was the mechanism because they were happening at the same time, and that's pretty plausible. So I guess, you know, to answer your question, Tony, you know, diuresis, these folks, it, it didn't really begin in earnest until about 30 minutes after administration. And again, that's just long after we're seeing these hemodynamic and physiologic effects. Okay. So at this point, we are five minutes out from Lasix administration. And sort of the data that we have tells us that what's going on is systemic venodilation via an increase in capacity, or so an increase in venous capacitance. And then that's leading to decreasing LV filling pressures, which decreases the sensation of dyspnea. So how venodilation? Is it the Lasix itself? Is it the fact that you are signaling the nephron somehow, some magic? <laughs> the magic, I mean, yeah, cytokines I mean, of some sort. Yeah, as I say, we're going to wave our hand and say it's some kind of cytokine. And so <laughs> the first clue to a mechanism here came, it was an experiment in the 1970s as well. And this was an animal experiment. It was done in, in dogs. And so um, if these kinds of experiments uh, are not something that you want to hear about, then I would suggest skipping past this. But the researchers made simultaneous, uh, they made the dogs simultaneously hypervolemic, so they gave them fluids, but they also made them anuric by ligating the ureters and then basically wanted to see what happened. So they administered furosemide. And sure enough, the pulmonary capillary wedge pressure decreased, even though the animals didn't make any urine. And which, again, kind of supported the, the non-diuretic effects of, of the drug that we've been talking about. 
But then to get at mechanism, they pre-treated with the drug indomethacin, which is an NSAID. And before they give that before giving furosemide and then measured filling pressures as well. And so after giving the indomethacin, the effects of furosemide were blocked and the wedge pressure didn't go down. So I'll throw it back to you guys. What would that suggest to you about furosemide's mechanism if indomethacin is blocking things? Uh, <laughs> I'm, uh, I don't know. The pain was relieved. No, no. So <laughs> I think one thing um, is that NSAIDs are known to inhibit prostaglandin synthesis. So And prostaglandins can lead to dilation um, uh, of vessels. So I don't know if it has anything to do with that. Yeah, exactly. So. NSAIDs like indomethacin block cyclooxygenase 1 and 2, which effectively blocks production of prostaglandins downstream. So like you said, prostaglandins, you know, they have many effects, but they are potent vaso and venodilators. So they dilate arteries, they dilate veins. But in the animal experiment, you know, we discussed indomethacin blocked furosemide's non-diuretic effects on left ventricular filling pressure. So that implicated prostaglandins as the mediators of the, the venodilation and that increase in venous capacitance that all these experiments have seen. Are either of you convinced? Uh, it's, it's compelling, but you know, you met and I'd like to see a little bit more evidence. I'll call myself convinced, but go ahead, tell us more. <laughs> How long did it take us to get to our first diuretic pun? <laughs> I've been dying to use that one. Yeah, that was great. So luckily enough, there was a study that did strongly support the mechanism for prostaglandins. And this was in 1997. And they looked at furosemide's effect on vascular tone in the forearm. And so they recorded arterial and venous blood flow before and after infusing furosemide. And the arteries actually didn't react, which I was a bit surprised about when I was reading, but the veins dilated by up to 72%. So pretty significant venodilation after the furosemide was given. But of course, what's coming? Indomethacin, right? So that's the next step here is we got to try to isolate the prostaglandin effect. They gave indomethacin and they saw that the venodilatory effect was blocked by it. So that really did implicate prostaglandins directly in this venodilatory mechanism. It is interesting though that they didn't see any effect on the arteries, which suggests there's, you know, maybe something more to it beyond just the effect on prostaglandins, but nonetheless, it's pretty compelling that they uh the furosemide leads to venodilation. But there are, there's also a question, right? So how does furosemide actually interact with prostaglandin signaling or, you know, lead to some increase in prostaglandins? Cuz like with loop diuretics, they affect the you know, sodium potassium chloride co-transporter. I don't usually think about them as doing something with prostaglandin. So you're, you have to help me out with that. Yeah. So, and you are correct. You know, furosemide is not a direct venodilator, but in terms of how it may impact prostaglandins, it turns out furosemide can directly increase prostaglandin release from endothelial cells. And this was actually studied in cultured bovine aortic <laughs> cells in the 90s. Very cultured. <laughs> yes, yes, right. High class. Where, you know, so basically the addition of furosemide led to a threefold increase in prostaglandin production and release from those cells within a couple minutes of incubation. So there's definitely a direct link there. Hmm. Did, I mean, did they have anything else mechanistic about how that actually happened? Yeah, the exact mechanism is not clearly defined, but there's some recent evidence that it may actually inhibit 
prostaglandin dehydrogenase, which is what breaks down and inactivates prostaglandins. So it may be actually not that furosemide is stimulating prostaglandin um, production or release, but that it might actually be blocking the breakdown of prostaglandin. So there's just more of it around and it's not getting broken down. Okay. So if the mechanism of the venodilation is via prostaglandins, you'd imagine that there might be other effects that come with prostaglandins beyond the venodilation. Is is there any evidence for that? So this stuff, this the next stuff that we're going to talk about here, this data really, I mean, there was like this two hit thing happening to me where I was like, oh my gosh, furosemide is a venodilator. And then, oh my gosh, it does all these other things too via the same mechanisms. And so this second thing really just blew me away too. So inhaled furosemide has been studied in dyspnea palliation for cancer patients, and it's been shown to be efficacious. And there may be you know, kind of multiple mechanisms going on as to why it's happening. There might be some something with J receptor modulation and signaling from those receptors. But you know, but if we think about it, if pros, if furosemide increases prostaglandin activity, what should it do to bronchial tone when given in inhaled formulations? I love this question because much much like the intern picking the furosemide dose, it's, it's like I'm I've got a fifty percent shot, and then we'll find out either way. <laughs> I would guess, sort of going back for a second, furosemide is going to increase prostaglandins. Prostaglandins sort of produce overall dilation. Perhaps it will bronchodilate if you give it as an inhaled formulation. One hundred percent, one hundred percent, eighty milligrams. And so, yeah, so and so exactly, so. It, it acts sort of as, as an indirect bronchodilator because of this increased prostaglandin activity. And that's exactly what happened in an experiment in rat airways. And so treatment with methacholine and serotonin, which, are, which provoke bronchoconstriction, uh, leads to constriction of the bronchioles. But with giving furosemide prior to, to those drugs, it was able to block the effects of the bronchoconstrictors instead of indirectly causing bronchodilation. And again, incredibly, this is similar to the venodilatory studies that we looked at. Pre-treatment with endomethacin blocked the ability of furosemide to bronchodilate. Mm. It's like, oh my God, it's all the same. And it's kind of another reason why your patient might be um, feeling better quickly. Like maybe you got the yes, diagnosis wrong. Yes. They actually don't have acute pulmonary edema. They're just bronchospastic. Mm. <laughs> well, that's the thing. You're bronchodilating. You might be affecting J receptor output, so they just feel less dyspneic in general, and they get venous capacitance yeah, increase. It's kind of magical, so huh? They, the wet, the pressures go down. Right. It's just, and, and then thirty minutes later, yeah. they're they're peeing. <laughs> you and they're and they're diuresing. Yeah, which is I the mean that's the thing. Effect. You can treat like a multiple different potential diagnoses all at the same time and look smart doing so because the patient feels better. So I, I, Avia, I have another question, and yeah. and I kind of alluded to this earlier when you talked about how uh, when they looked at the forearms of patients, there was a lot of venodilation, but there was not a lot of arterial dilation. Um, you know, if again, if it's working via prostaglandins, sh- you know, shouldn't it affect both? And we're able to find an explanation for for maybe why there's that difference. So Tony, thank you for uh, not letting that inconsistency hang out in the ether unanswered and having us come back to that because I do think it's worth talking about because this is something that I was surprised about too, that if furosemide is increasing prostaglandin activity, it should be a venodilator, but also a vasodilator. It should dilate arteries too. And 
So it turns out that purely through the prostaglandin effect, it probably is having a vasodilatory effect, but the net effect on the arterial system from furosemide appears to be null. And that is because of there is concomitant upregulation of the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system as well at the same time, which causes vasoconstriction through angiotensin. So the vasodilation from prostaglandins and the vasoconstriction from renin-angiotensin-aldosterone access, they seem to probably balance each other out, which allows for the venodilation to be the predominant hemodynamic effect of furosemide. That's awesome. That's what I learned. Okay. Okay, Avi, thank you for this incredible episode that I will be asking, sending to every single medical student that I have on my service from now until the end of residency. Uh, Can you give those medical students a couple learning points to take home? So I I guess the first one would be that furosemide, when it makes people feel better, when they're in acute congestive heart failure, is probably acting via like at least four different ways. (laughs) (laughs) And, um, but the, the main way in terms of the immediate effect in terms of decreasing dyspnea is rapidly decreasing the left ventricular filling pressures in acute heart failure. And it does so via venodilation. The mechanism for that appears to be upregulation of prostaglandins in the, in the endothelium and the, uh, and furosemide also acts as a bronchodilator via the same mechanism. And then 30 minutes later, they'll diarrhease. <laughs> and then you fix the problem. All right. That wraps up another episode of The Curious Clinicians. Thank you, as always, for joining us. As a reminder, you can join our mailing list at curiousclinicians.com to stay up to date on episode releases and have detailed notes delivered directly to your inbox. We are excited to partner with DCU Health to offer CME and MOC credits for physicians and other healthcare professionals just for listening to this episode. For more information, visit ce.bcuhealth.org slash curiousclinicians. And as always, the information contained in this episode is for educational and entertainment purposes only and does not constitute medical advice. Until next time, we've been the Curious Clinicians. Bye. Bye.